We're having a little technical difficulty with Jim Horman this evening trying to get on. Jim's going to continue to try. Um, yep. How you doing, Deanna? We missed you last week. I mentioned your name a couple of times. Um, I'll tell you what we're going to do today then. As you can tell, I'm in the field. Isn't it, isn't it uh, awesome to be looking out the window and seeing a nice, beautiful green cover crop over there? Um, like I said, we're experiencing a little difficulty with Jim Horman trying to get on, so we're just going to go with this. We're going to do some more Q&A, some more talking, but uh, I'm going to do the same thing again to myself that I do to every every guest speaker we have on. Rick, what is on your mind right now? What's on my mind right now is, is dust. There was a terrible, terrible dust storm in central Illinois. And unfortunately, there were six or seven people killed and multiple vehicles uh, were in this, in this terrible wreck. And um, there was tillage involved and the tillage created this dust cloud. I, I, I doubt if the farmer was even aware of what was going on. And um, we're not here to point blame at anyone, but uh, we do know it is proven that, that cover crops and no-till will greatly minimize erosion, if not uh, totally eliminate it. But we do know it will greatly minimize it. And that erosion is not only water erosion, but also wind erosion. So what we need to do, we need to come together as a community and we need to not point blame at anyone and not, not, not point fingers and, and don't say things. Let's try to figure out how to help these people to get to the promised land. And we all know what that is. It's, it's building soil health, building human health, trying your best to eliminate tillage, uh, establishing a cover crop program, and greatly reducing the synthetic input load. And we need to understand that these people need our help. They need, they need teaching and they need training. And our hearts go out for these folks that were injured or, or killed. It was a terrible thing. Um, I'm, I, I don't know. It just, that's what's on my mind. It's, it, if anybody's got any thoughts, put something in the chat. Um, hey, Rachel, are, are you still there? Yes, I am. Yeah, Rachel, if somebody raises their hand, can you unmute them? Yes. All right. Let's, let's just give this a whirl and see how this works tonight. Um, if someone would like to say something, would you please raise your hand? Rachel's got to find you. She will unmute you. And, and please be courteous and kind, because if you're not, we, we will cut you off. Uh, I've never done this before. So let's see how this goes, okay? Is there anybody out there that wants to say anything? Nobody wants to say anything? Okay. Well, then I'm gonna move into um, 
what is happening on the farm right now. And we have, uh, we've been waiting for conditions to get uh, what we thought would be more, more in line with the way, the style of farming we do. So we do have a few beans in the ground, but uh, we're back on beans today. It's May the 4th. We've got beautiful weather here. We're actually in Illinois today. Um, and, you know, we just have to be, we just have, we've got to be able to be patient and not get in the fields until they're fit to be in. So, um, is there anything, if you don't want to talk, that's fine. Do you have a question you have for me? Please put it in the chat. Uh, this may be the shortest podcast I've ever done. Um, I know you, your folks came on to listen to Jim, and I'm, I'm sorry he can't get his technical difficulties figured out. But, um, but we'll roll with it. That's okay. Um, let's talk about Let's talk about biology. I came in late, so I missed what you said in the beginning. Um, okay, any winter kill issues this winter? Um, good questions. Okay, you didn't miss anything yet. Um, what I was going to try to do tonight was if you wanted to ask a question or if you wanted to make a comment, you can raise your hand. There's a hand button down at the bottom of your screen. I think it's at the bottom. We've got push one, that. We've got one person that raised their hand and ready here. Okay, go ahead. Please Jeremy. tell me who you are and where you're from. Hey, Rick, this is Jeremy Tave, Central Michigan. Yes, Jeremy. I'm How an organic tonight? farmer. Fine. I've uh, listened to your podcast, your webinar. So I'm an organic yes. farmer, but I only have, I only farm a hundred acres. So the, uh, the, the no-till no aspect of it is a little too risky for me to take that jump just yet. Uh -huh. Um, because if, if I have a failure, it's on all my acres. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I understand. I don't, I don't have more acres, but anyway, uh, I was wondering, uh, can you uh, give me a rundown on how harvest went last year? And I know we don't like to talk about yields, and yields are different everywhere, and prices are different everywhere. But but um, at the end of the day, it does sort of come down to yield. So yeah, um, what uh, what what are you seeing on beans? What are you seeing on corn with your systems? Uh, of course, it, it's always something that I keep looking at. Yeah. Well, first of all, Jeremy, you're very wise to not jeopardize the livelihood of your farm. If you don't like the feel of something or if your gut tells you it's not quite right, then, then you've, got to, uh, you've got to respect that. And I admire you for doing that. Uh, but I would also say let's try to take out two, three, four, five acres and try this this practice on those acres, okay? And then you can maybe get a look. And I've always suggested that a person who's wanting to get started uh, start with soybeans and no-till the soybeans into that green growing cereal rye 
and then you could do a couple of things. I mean, we could roll it, uh, or you could you could flail chop it. Flail chop it's not going to terminate it. It will probably grow back again and still try to put a head on. Uh, you could, I mean, those are really the two main options, or there is three, I guess. Uh, you can just do, just plant your beans and let it go. Just, and that's what we used to do. And we've been doing that now for a couple of years. Last year, for example, we didn't even get the roller out. Well, I think we rolled 100 acres last year. And that 100 acres might have been the weediest acres we had on the farm. But you want me to talk about yields from last year, and I will to some degree here. But let me go over again what happened last year. We had a beautiful fall in the fall of 21. We got a lot of cover crops planted when we wanted to. And we then went into a period of the winter where um, we had no cover on the ground and our friends to the north, the, the Canadians sent down a clipper and we got to like 40 below zero. And that pretty well crushed our cover crops. We, we lost about half our stand coming out in the spring of 22. And I thought, okay, that's fine. Then we're, we're still gonna, we're gonna be okay. We got half the stand. That's barely enough biomass, but that's okay. Let's, let's roll with it and see what we got. Well, we get toward the end of May and we get another frost and it pretty Hello? much takes out. Yeah. Hey, can you hear me, Rick? Yeah, yeah, I'm right in the middle of explaining something. Hang on just a second, okay? Thank sure. you. Go ahead. Thank you. So um, we get a late frost, and it pretty much crushes the rest of our biomass that we had growing in these cover crops. So we went into the growing season of 22 with less than 2,000 pounds of biomass. That's, that's terrible. We don't do any tillage. We don't do any chemistry, and we're in big trouble. So we, we parked our 20-inch row spacing corn planter, which is what we plant our soybeans with, we got out our drill, our air seeder, and we air seeded our soybeans on seven and a half inch spacing at about 280,000 plants per acre. Because my theory was we better get the biomass had better come from the cash crop to soybeans. Now, Jeremy, I know I'm taking a long time to answer this question, but I needed to, to re refresh everyone's memory and I'm not going to give you numbers, but here's what I'm going to tell you. We had the best soybean average yield on the farm last year since we've been organic. It was the best average we've had on the farm. Uh, the corn numbers are not where I want them to be. Uh, we're, we're right around pushing up toward that 100 bushel an acre mark, which to me, that's, that's still not quite good enough, but I... I I want to be in that 140 range, but you got to think we're not adding any inputs. We're saving close to $400 an acre on inputs. We're selling at organic prices and 140 bushel corn is plenty good enough for this system right now until we can continue to make it better and better. And that's what we try to do every day. You know, we have this podcast helps. I get comments from folks gets my brain working. Um, we've got people on here like Deanna Lazinski who pushes the envelope. 
in North Dakota. I mean, all of these people helped push us. Lauren Steinlogge, they, they all push us to go to do better things. So, um, but here's what I will tell you, Jeremy. Across the board, we dropped 35 percent on the when we left our 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 100 percent no-till, 100 percent cover crop. And we were uh, down to a 70% reduction of inputs, and we were all non-GMO. When we left that level and went organic, we dropped 35% across the board. I'll be uh, brutally honest, and you have to be aware of that. This is very, very difficult. If you think that you need to see 50 to 55 to 60 bushel beans and no weeds, this is not for you. This is a system that has a lot of trials and tribulation to go with it. But I'm never going back. There's too many health benefits. There's too many soil health benefits and there's too many human health benefits. So uh, this is where we are. Our family's on board and I apologize for taking way too long to answer that question, Jeremy, but I wanted to kind of give you the full rundown again. Now there was somebody else that came on. Do you have a question there? I'm sorry, I can't. I cannot see your name. Yeah, yeah. This is Jim. I finally got my phone to work. Oh, <laughs> I had Jim. to download the program. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Hey, we got Jim Horman on. Jim, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. I was. I don't know what happened on the uh, computer, but uh, I had to download the program on my phone. I didn't have the Zoom on my phone and. Uh, just took a little while to get through everything. Right, right. Well, uh, real quick, Jim, just to hang on just a second. Rachel, do we have any other questions there that I need to address right at the moment? Uh, you've got one from Bo Clausen, I believe. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. Um, it says, hey, Rick, I have an established alfalfa hayfield going to corn that could be cut for haylage, maybe 1.5 ton acre worth $225 acre yep. to me from neighbor dairy. Is there more valuable leaving hay and planting into it versus cutting and selling off? Thanks. Uh, that's a great question. Great question. Um, all right. Here's the way I look at it. You, you are going to, you are going to raise this. Or, I mean, you're going to, first of all, how, how are you going to terminate your alfalfa? Go ahead and raise your hand if you don't mind. Let Rachel unmute you and let's talk real quick. Can we do that? Hello. No. Okay. Yes, I'm, me... I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm allowing him to talk. Yo, yes. coming through. Yes. Hey, Rick. Yeah, on, yes, on terminating it, um, I, I I'm not sure yet on which way it's going to go. I do have a lot of weeds in this field, and uh, typically it's glyphosate to terminate, but um, on it. But uh, you've intrigued me on uh, non-termination or whatever, just planning into it. So, yeah. so I, my my, yeah. my plan was to strip till into it and, and uh, go from there. Well, let me tell you, don't, don't, don't hang up here. We want to just keep the communication going here. Um, now, let me tell you about strip tilling, though. 
strip tilling probably will not work. It's going to look great for about a week, and then the alfalfa is going to come back in and regrow and probably take over again. So I'm not sure that's a viable uh, solution there, unless you're going to chemically terminate, and I'm okay with that. So if you're going to strip till, plant your corn, and then I'm assuming you're planting a GMO corn that would take your, your Roundup, and let yes. that corn get three, four, five inches tall, then go in there and burn that alfalfa down and watch that alfalfa, or watch that corn just explode out, okay? That's if you want to still use some chemistry. Yep. If you don't, if you don't want to use chemistry and you want to get, uh, get away from it, uh, how wide is your, uh, your strip? About 10 inches, eight or 10 inches? Yeah, I'm in probably eight inches max. Okay. See what's going to happen, and what are you doing? About six inches deep, maybe four inches. Um, yeah. Well, right now I'm set up in the corn. I, I got it down to eight inches, so it's between six and eight inches on the shank. And uh, and I've done it in the past, but I've always terminated prior and uh, and, and took off the crop and then planted yeah. into the the oh, the stubble. And I, there's no problem with that. But this field here, I'm just really intrigued on on leaving this this residue cover there instead of thinking yeah. that might have do a lot more benefit. From what I've seen in the yeah. past with residue cover and earthworms, it's it's amazing. So that's what it's intrigued me. This couple hundred dollar quick cash right now, I might be giving up a lot of long-term benefit. Yeah, let me ask you another question. What do you think? I know this is going to be a tough one, but what do you think the future is looking like for your weather? Do you think you're going to have a good season this year, or do you think you're going to maybe struggle with some cash flow? Uh, cash flow, no problem. I, I think we're going to have – have a shorter growing season than normal with that grand solar minimal and stuff. So I, I believe that we're going to be a little bit shorter season than normal. Okay. Okay. What here's I'm why in. I'm asking. Here's why I'm asking the question. You've got a crop in hand right now that you can get whatever you said, $220 an acre right now. So the question yep. to you is, do you want to give that up and maybe try this experiment next year? Or do you want to just roll the dice? Don't take the 220 and go ahead and try no-tilling corn right into that or or do your strip till that i can't answer that one for you but all i can tell you is in about two weeks after you strip till you're not going to be able to tell you did anything because the alfalfa is going to come right back in and start to swallow that corn up but your corn might make it out of the ground and go before that happens Okay. Does that help? Does that help? Yep. Yep. No, no. And, and a lot of just trying to see the, this long-term benefit of that, call it even leaving that, call it one to two ton of biomass on the surface, you know, where we're used to that taking helps. everything off and getting that green ground. Now I'm thinking it might be a lot more benefit to leave that, that biomass on top, even if it, it is, is terminated. A, it is a benefit. And here's the other thing. When, when you, now you're going to terminate with chemistry. Okay. That's fine. But, but when you, uh, when you don't cut alfalfa, so in other words, you let it grow and you just do the thing that we talked about, you go in there and strip till and all that, alfalfa is going to shut down and not start to take more of your precious moisture away from you. If you go in there and take that off as a, as a, as a crop to leave the farm, it's going to want to regrow. Of course, you're going to terminate, I know, but it's going to want to regrow and it's going to start to uh, take moisture out of the profile. Plus, 
you've lost all of those nutrients that your corn crop needs. You just lost in that first big wave of biomass that just left the farm. So my advice would be to, to not take it off and leave that biomass there and leave all that fuel for the corn. It'll probably be some of the best corn you've ever raised. No, thanks. I think that's what I like to do anyways. And that's kind of what I need to get that confirmation on it. And uh, yeah. the, the, the reason it's a perfect field because it, it's a little weedier than, and we've struggled with this uh, new piece of ground and uh, it's not as ideal for the dairy to take it because of the weeds in and that. So I thought, well, you know, this is better than yeah. tilling it, working up, leave it there and take, just try to take advantage of this, uh, this, this biomass um, that, that can be left there. So no, totally sounds good. Tell me, tell me where you're from again. Eastern Washington state. Ah, perfect. I was there not long ago. Um, uh, where was I at? Um, You're by Spokane? Yeah, uh, I flew into there. Uh, what's the, uh, what's the, oh, Rick, your brain's gone dead. What's the, what's the area called in the southern part of the state? The, the, um, the Palouse. Yeah, that's, that's, I was in that area there. Yep, the Rolling Hills. Yeah, yeah beautiful. It was beautiful, beautiful. Hey, Thanks for the call and good luck with everything. All right. And and stay Thank on. We got Jim Horman coming. Will do. Rachel, are, Thank we, you. are we all good, Rachel? Uh, I believe we're good. Jim, can can you uh, say something? Make sure we can hear you. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Can you hear me? Yes, we all right, can. Good. We got okay, we great. got the man Jim. We got the man Jim Horman, folks. Jim, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead. I don't know if you've seen our podcast or not, Jim. But there's only there's always one question I ask at the very beginning. I'm going to ask you this now, um, Jim. What what is on your mind right now? It could be anything, Jim. I don't care what it is. But what's been on your mind the last couple of days? Well, I've been um, I been doing some getting some calls about crimping. I guess that's that's one thing that uh, yep. kind of uh, uh, we're, we're starting to, guys are getting close to, you know, usually the best time to crimp is, uh, at least from my experience, has been it's got to be at least in the boot stage if you're doing cereal rye. And it's probably better if it's headed out. So I, I get a lot of calls about, about that right now. So so that's that's yeah. one thing that's kind of been on my, our mind. Um, right here where we're at, we're, we're on the wet side. Um, we're finally getting some sun here. The last four or five days have been really cold and wet. So, oh, yeah. um, I don't know how long it'll take. I don't know how long it'll take for us to dry out, but I would imagine the first part of next week, we'll probably be back at it again. So, uh, there was a few crops went in here. I'm, I'm around, uh, Lima, Ohio, uh, about an hour South of Toledo. And yeah. um, we, we've had some crops go in, but um, most of the guys have kind of held off just because they knew we were going to probably get some cold weather. But I, I'm sure everybody will be going at it hard here uh, in a couple of days. So, yeah, but we're yeah. Just, just a little wet right now. Well, yeah. And, and you know, Jim, we've got to be um, we've got to be patient with this, this system we're in here. I mean. When the neighbors are yes. running doesn't mean we can be running. So we got to we gotta just relax, take a deep breath, and uh, wait yep. for the conditions to get right. Yep. 
Yeah, uh, I would hey, agree I, with I, that. Yeah. Uh, Jim, hang on a second. I want to go back to the chat. Brad here's got a great – I think Brad was making the comment for the gentleman here in um, Washington, I'm assuming. Uh, Brad says, use BMR Sorghum Sudan drilled into the alfalfa. That's what we're going to do this year, and I think it's going to work. Um, I like the notion – of Sudan or Milo or sorghum. I think it's all kind of the same thing. Um, I think it'd be a great feed source for the dairy. It's, it's, it's more drought resistant. It requires way less nutrients and it's got a lot more vigor than corn has got. So I like that. Thanks Brad for putting that on there. Um, and he's also gotten very specific there and he says BMR which is very highly digestible uh, by the, uh, the dairy cow. So great, uh, great comment, Brad. Thank you. Um, all right, Jim. Hey, Jim, give us, give us a little bit of your background, if you would. I know you've done a lot with The Ohio State University. Uh, you were at uh, USDA NRCS. So just give us, the, give us uh, some history there, please. Yeah, I, I worked for uh, Ohio State for 24 years. Um, I was uh, worked with no-till, cover crops, water quality. Uh, that was my main area. Soil health, I kind of become one of the soil health experts in Ohio. And then uh, I left Extension, went to work for the government, NRCS with the Soil Health Division, was a regional specialist there. I only lasted three years. That was about all I could stand uh, working for the government. So, uh, yeah. uh, and then after that, I just went on my own. So um, I've been doing some consulting, teaching, uh, doing some grants. Uh, I do sell some of the crimper rollers uh, for INJ. Um, and uh, so um, between, you know, making soil test recommendations, teaching, uh, doing a couple grants, uh, doing some research here and there. That's that's kind of what I do now. Well, you're, you're a busy man. I've known Jim for several years, and uh, I've had the pleasure to uh, be on the stage, not with Jim, but there's been times I've gone before Jim, and there's times I've gone after Jim. And my gosh, Jim, you are a wealth of knowledge. Um you know so much about what's going on below the ground. It's, it's very impressive. Um, but I, I want to, I don't want to go there yet. I want to start somewhere else that I've been getting a lot of these questions lately. Um, Jim, how do we get people started to do the regenerative practices or, or even if you don't want to call it that, if you want to call it following the principles of soil health, how do we get, how do we get these farmers to start doing these things? Boy, if I knew the answer to that, uh, <laughs> that'd be great. But I mean, I, you know, from, from my perspective, I'd say, you know, just trying to do no-till by itself. I, I think no-till is maybe one third of the solution uh, yeah. until you get the cover crops in there. You've got to have the cover crops in order to make the no-till work. So, I think probably the easiest place is if you have wheat in the rotation, put um, you know multi-species mix of cover crops after the wheat, and because you got some growing time there, uh, you know wheat usually comes off around here, you know after Fourth of July usually, you know, right? Some years maybe before that, but 
most of the time it's right around the 4th of July or shortly after that. And you've got a long growing season there and you can really um, spice up your, your fields a little bit, get that biology um, moving again. Um, where most people probably fail is they, they, they switch over from conventional to no-till and they, they do it in a strict corn soybean rotation. And the biggest problem with making no-till work is you got to get rid of that compaction. You got to have good, right. really it's soil structure. It's all about soil structure and aggregate stability. Yeah. And when you, when you get that aggregate stability back and you start building that carbon back into your soil, then a lot of your problems are going to solve themselves. I mean, a lot of the problems are going to go away or, or you won't have as a big a deal with them. And uh, you got to get your soils to drain and you got to have that good aggregate stability. If, if you don't have good aggregate stability, that's what holds no-till back. And, and then you got to get, and, and once you get that aggregate stability, you'll have the, the biology and uh, the biology needs live roots. So you got to have live roots year round as much as possible. Yeah. And uh, once you, once you get to there, then then uh, you can make it work. It's probably the toughest in a corn soybean rotation. Um, but yeah, because uh, explain that. Explain why again. Why that's tougher. And uh, yeah, just explain why that is. Just because you because usually what farmers want to do is they want to plant late maturing corn and late maturing soybeans, and you can never get a good stand to cover crops. If you're always planting your cover crops the first of November, first of December, it's just at least around here, it's really hard. So um, you have to maybe change a little bit of your management, try to go with a little bit earlier maturing, either that or you got to find a way to um, one of the, the newest things that's going on. Um, I, I did it on my own farm for the first time here this spring is using drones drones are i think going to be huge here in the in the future um shortly I, all the guys that i'm talking to that are doing drones plan on doubling tripling the amount of acres that they're going to do this year so uh if if you can use a drone and get that cover crop seed on you know before your other crop is harvested and uh, get it started and maybe even growing right before you, you harvest it i think we can gain some time the only problem I have with, with drones are you really need to have a good rain. It, you need at least one inch, if not two inches of rain on it to get it started. And then the other problem we have is with slugs and bowls and sometimes the right. earthworms. If you've got a really good earthworm populations, they'll pull all that seed down one hole instead of keeping it spread out. So I don't think there's any one perfect way of doing it, but... Uh, some years, if you get a really dry fall, it won't work. But if you have some rain, uh, if you can get that cover crop out right before the rain with the drone, uh, I've seen some guys have some pretty good luck with that uh, this past year. So, um, that, yeah, that seems to be something new, I think. Hey, uh, Walt, I'll come back to your question in just a second. Hang on, Walt. Okay, now, now Jim, I want to go back to what you said there about how hard this is to do this in a corn soybean rotation. And if we can mm -hmm. get, I know you can only raise crops where you have a market. I understand that. But yep. wheat, 
like you said, is so valuable here because, and you also said another thing that's very important is you did not double crop another crop behind that wheat crop. You went in with your massive cocktail, in my opinion, to get ready for a corn crop next year, right? Right. Yep. Yep. You can, you can add a, a, a lot of nutrients. I mean, if you get out a good, some good legumes, some good clovers. Now, you don't want to go overboard on it. Dave Brandt did that one year. And uh, uh, if you get your nitrogen levels too high, I think he had 1,100 parts per million on one small plot that he did. And he sent that sample into Rick Haney. And Rick Haney about had a fit. He said, David, what did you do? And, and I'm yeah. not putting David down. He only did it on a very small acreage. He was just, just wanted to see what would happen. And yeah. Dave said, when I went back to plan into that, if you go just 100% uh, legumes and clovers, uh, it was just hard as a rock. And, and right. David always says, you know, at least in, he was in Vietnam, he said they used anhydrous on those uh, airports, you know, to make runways. And yeah. uh, too much nitrogen can really make your soil too hard. So you, you right. want to you want to avoid you got to have the combination of carbon and and balance that with with the uh, with the nitrogen. So it's usually ten to one. I mean, you need ten parts carbon to you know ten yeah to uh, one yeah. part nitrogen. So so you do need yeah. that mix. I think that's the key key thing that you're saying. And yeah. the other thing that people don't realize is how much you improve your microbial population, uh, uh, especially your, your mycorrhizae fungi, they need about nine months in order to complete their life cycle. So if you go after wheat and you have a, a live crop out there till December, now you're going to really increase your mycorrhizae. That's, right. That's where putting some oats out there, oats is highly mycorrhizal. It's probably the most mycorrhizal uh, followed by sorghum. Both of those are just yep. really, really highly mycorrhizal. Excellent. So um, that, that can just really help jumpstart it. And, and if you got a little manure, uh, I always say cover crops with, you know, either a couple ton or a couple, th- you know, a th- couple thousand gallons of manure, you'll get twice the biomass off of that. And that's what it's all about is just getting more biomass, both above ground and below ground. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes to uh, uh, a comment that Michael has: Is biomass the ultimate goal for success of cover crops? I yes, I would say yeah. I would say yes. I, uh, Jim and yes. I agree. I mean, there's other yeah. there's other attributes here, but uh, <laughs> biomass is what it's all about. Well, and it goes back to what's the most limiting nutrient in our soil anymore, and this is almost universal: it's carbon. We, we have yeah. lost so much carbon from our soil. We used to have, you know, if you went to virgin soils, it's easily six or 8% on a prairie soil. We're down to 2%. Uh, on sandy soils, I'm seeing a half a percent. Uh, we've lost at least, at least 50 to maybe as much as 80% of the carbon from our soils. And carbon has really become a, a limiting element. Uh, um, John Kemp, I follow John Kemp quite a bit. And John says that within 
when the sun comes up, uh, we're only about 10 to 15% efficient at photosynthesis simply because we run out of carbon within, within about an hour to an hour and a half, maybe two hours in the morning, we've got enough carbon. Yeah. And after that, the plant has to either shut down or it'll, it'll literally explode. Uh, you know, when you got those, um, the, the sunlight hitting those, those leaves, uh, there's not enough carbon there. They have to shut it down or they don't have the carbon there. It'll literally blow up the plant. So the plant, yeah. the plant just starts shutting down a little bit. And if we had more carbon, that's our, that's our most limiting element right now. And yeah. um, then usually, well, usually there's other elements that are missing too, but um, that's the one that seems to be the most limited. Yeah. Now uh, one more question. Uh, let's go back uh, uh, is it, I'm sorry, I think it's Kenny. Kenny had a question. What species are, are you planning with those drones? And then also, Jim, before you answer that, you've got to give what, what their capacities are. I mean, I think they only carry, a, you know, 100, 150 pounds. So doing serial ride yeah. is not very realistic here. So go into right, a little right. more detail about the drones. So a lot of the drones they're using, um, uh, last year we were putting out Valencia, uh, which is a clover and uh, putting out four to eight pounds. Normally their load capacity, uh, the guy that came out, he did some for me this spring. He put on some uh, hairy vetch for me. Um, they generally are going 55 to, I don't know, maybe 60 pounds, 70 pounds, something like that. Um, they are getting ready, hopefully to change the rules. And the game changer will be is, is I think the next level that they're looking at will be 450 pounds. And that's going to really change everything. But um, a lot of guys are putting like oats and, and uh, uh, maybe either crimson clover or Valencia, maybe adding a pound of radish, something like that. That's a real nice three-way mix because you got a grass, a legume, and a, a, a brassica. And uh, that makes a nice, nice one going yeah. to uh, corn. And yeah. the nice thing about that is two of them will probably die out. The oats and the uh, radish will die out. They, they, they'll grow really quick in the fall. Then you only have to manage one in the spring. And right. uh, it's a little yeah. easier to manage. If, if you change that and add cereal rye instead of the oats. The, the reason I like oats is because it's highly microbial but you add cereal rye and then you add that with like a Valencia or a crimson clover. Now you're kind of fighting yourself because do you let, yeah. the, you try to get the most biomass or do you try to get, uh, you, you might want to kill it earlier. If, if you got too much cereal rye there, if you're trying to for corn, you want to maybe kill that a little early. If you're, if, if you want more of the nitrogen, you got to let that uh, Valencia or crimson clover grow a little longer, let, let it bloom. And so you're kind of always fighting yourself when you add cereal rye in a three-way mix like that. But with oats, if two of them die out, you can let it grow as long as you want. Um, and it's easier to crimp. You know, it's easy to crimp into that. So Yeah, that's you know, good advice. It, 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 it's one of the, those things where some years it'll work really good, but, um, you know, you're going to get yourself in a bind sooner or later if you're, if you're growing two of them that's going to be alive in the spring. So. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah. Now, 
Now we've got, uh, hey, Bryce, how you doing? Bryce is on from uh, uh, Western Kansas. Um, okay. And, and Bryce brings on a very good point here. Biomass is not the main focus in Western Kansas. It can burn up too much moisture for the next crop. So now yeah. what we have yeah. to do is go to those wonderful principles of soil health and whatever order you want to put them in, there's one in there called context. And now we have to talk about context. And Bryce, you are so exactly correct. So, yes, seeding rate is key. And, and yep. Bryce, uh, stop me here anytime you want. But I'm going to guess that you're, you use way redu more reduced rates than we do in the Midwest. Uh, you're probably still planting multiple species cocktails, but at much much less seeding rates, and you're trying to get the, um, the quorum sensing, the, the diversity, and all of these things working in your arid environment. So talk a little bit about context, Jim. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm, I'm in uh, Ohio, and we have excess rain here most of the time, and our soils are fairly wet, so our seeding rates are going to be a lot higher than, than uh, out in Kansas and Colorado and Nebraska and uh, Texas, those areas. So yes, it does. It does really matter where you're at. Now, one advantage they may have is just depends on whether they have irrigated or non-irrigated. But one of the one of the benefits of those cover crops are out west, though, is where guys are using the cover crops. They're finding out that in many cases they're using about half as much water just simply because it's effective water usage is what you really want to look at. And uh, where they're out there, you know, doing the fallow and doing the tillage all the time, they have such poor soil structures that a lot of times when they do irrigation, a lot of that water runs off. So once you get yeah. your aggregate stability, get that back up and get that water to penetrate, um, a lot of guys are finding that they can cut back at least a third, if not a half. Um, I'm working with a few guys out in Kansas and uh, Colorado that that contact me, and you know it's a, it's a different way of thinking. I you know I forget you go you go across the whole nation, so um, yep. got to remember my context is Ohio, uh, kind of yep. the, the no, Midwest, no, no. wet. Not, yeah, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying we've got to. Bryce brought up a great point, and we got to always be looking yeah, at, at at context. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, my my context is uh, east of the Mississippi, which is completely different farming than west of the Mississippi. So if I say something that doesn't make sense, take it, uh, realize where I'm from, and then ask the questions, and uh, we'll try to clarify it for those folks out west. Uh, yeah, uh, west of Mississippi. Yeah. So. We've got, uh, we've got, we've, hey, Jim, we've got folks from all over the world to tune in. We got a lady here, uh, Ludmila is with us, and she's from Ukraine. And, okay. Uh, yep. No, I don't think she's in Ukraine right now, but she's, in, she's from Ukraine. But, um, <clears throat> hi, Ludmila, how you doing this evening? Um, farmers who, here, I'm going to stop so I can read this. She's got a long She's got a long thing for us here. Farmers who do not have enough moisture in summer to establish cover crops after small grain instead opt to add frost-sensitive temporary companion cover crops with their winter cash crop in order to improve soil health, control weeds, curb erosion, 
enhance nutrient cycling, attract beneficial insects, and distract pests. With winter wheat, yeah. folks plant a little turnip, radish, buckwheat, flax, phacelia, millet, sorghums, clovers, peas, lentils, um, fenugreek, sunflowers. With winter canola, any frost-sensitive non-brassicas. That's an excellent point. And that is a yep. very a good way, another good way to uh, establish some cover crops. Go, go for it, Jim. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree with all that. And here's, here's one of the benefits of getting the cover crops out. Now, you might not get the benefit from it, but probably one of your neighbors. This is one of those things where uh, everybody needs to scratch each other's back, if you understand what I'm saying. But some recent information just came out within like the last year or so. Uh, they were studying the drought of the 1930s, and they discovered that the drought in the 1930s probably lasted four years longer than it had to. And what the researchers discovered was that when they, when they took all that prairie ground and turned it under, what happened is there's microbes on those leaves that go up into the atmosphere and when the microbes get up into the atmosphere, what happens, the, the moisture accumulates around it, it freezes, and it comes down as rain, snow, sleet, hail, whatever. But one of the reasons could be that we're, we're seeing so many three, four, five, seven, eleven 11-inch rains is because we don't have enough microbes in the atmosphere. So, for example, if you go down to the equator, where they have all the, the tropical forest every single day, just about at the same time every day, right around 3, 3.30, they'll get a quarter inch, half inch rain. And the reason for that is the sun comes down, we're getting um, um, you know, evapotranspiration. And with that evapotranspiration, the microbes are on the leaves, they go up into the atmosphere. And when they reach the right um you know, the right height up there, all of a sudden, and that's usually right around 3, 3.30, sometime around there, they'll get a little bit of a rain. And our problem, I think, is we've got so much bare ground now in, in the United States. It goes back to the Dust Bowl that you were kind of talking about here the other day that killed those six or seven people. How many, how many got yeah. killed there? Um, we got to keep that soil in place. And that you do that with live roots. And with that, you'll, you'll get more microbes up into the atmosphere and you'll get more regular rains, smaller rains. But if we don't get that, what will happen is the trade winds will take it and then it ends up raining out in the ocean. And it doesn't do us any good if we, we need that moisture on the lands, but we want to try to keep it on. And we'd rather see it in, in half inch, one inch rains than, than four, five, seven, 11 inch rings. And uh, yeah, exactly. that, that, that's a huge, huge uh, problem that, that, that we're having right now. It's interesting when I was out at Kansas, um, several of the guys were kind of talking. They said, you know, the drought wasn't as bad in Eastern Kansas and they were discussing it. And they said, you know, we noticed it rained right where the rivers were. And right around those rivers is where they have trees growing along the rivers. And there's probably just enough microbes getting up into the, uh, the atmosphere. They've discovered at least 67 species of Pseudomonas bacteria in the atmosphere. And there could be quite a few more. But uh, they said 
you know, they were getting a few rains. And I'm not saying it's going to get rid of your drought, but it might lessen some of the droughts if we just had yeah. more vegetation out there across the whole United States. Jim, there's just so much we don't, just so much we don't know, you know, it's just amazing. Yes, yes, yes. And it's great when you can start to put some of these things together, um, you know. Yeah, exactly. You've probably heard me say this, but, you know, going back to carbon, uh, I always like to ask the question, you know, how much carbon does it take to grow 200 bushel corn, for example? And uh, it's, it's about 100 pounds of carbon per, per day. And I always like to ask, well, where does that carbon come from? Most of us have been taught it comes from the atmosphere. But if we were to get it just out of the atmosphere at 410 parts per million, over every acre of corn, you'd have to have 32 cubic acres of air. Cubic acres. Okay. And that's a lot. That, you know, that's a lot. So where does that carbon come from? Well, think about those leaves. The stomata are underneath the leaves, okay? Yeah. And those leaves take in carbon. They give off oxygen. What do the roots take in? Roots take in oxygen and give off carbon. And the, the carbon content of the roots of the soil is 3,000 to 10,000 parts per million compared to 410 just in the general atmosphere. So that's that goes back to that diversity and having a lot of different root structures and having a canopy there so that you can capture that carbon and keep it recycling on, on your land is what you want to do. And then, well, it, then no. it also goes back to, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, 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 yo, keep going, keep going. Well, uh, when, when you break that carbon down, so when do we lose most of our nutrients? So most of us will do, you know, when you look at the conventional guys, they're doing their tillage in the fall. And we know that within the first five or 10 minutes after you do tillage, there's just a huge spike of carbon going up into the atmosphere. And that all goes up in the atmosphere and trade winds take it. Most of it probably ends up in the, uh, in the ocean. Okay. But when you break down that carbon, what else do you do? You're, you're, you're releasing um, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and then most of that doesn't have a carbon source to hang on to. And so in the winter, we'll get snow. And in the spring, we'll, that snow will melt. And then we start to get the rains. And that's when we lose most of our nutrients out of our soils. It gets washed off. And, and the heavier the rain, the more you're going to lose. And not only do we lose... Um, you know, the, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, but the micronutrients. And uh, we're also seeing a lot of the fulvic acid and the humates, which are so important also. Um, and they get washed off into the stream. And, uh, and that's why we get these algae blooms. Everybody talks about nitrogen and phosphorus, but I, I, I'll tell you that the humates, the fulvic and the humic acid, and all the micronutrients, it's a biological system that just makes those algae just go crazy. It's actually cyanobacteria, just makes them go nuts. So uh, it's yeah. a broken system. We have this broken system, carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, micronutrients, and, and the microbes. It, it's, it's, a, it's a system that we've kind of kind of broken. And, well, and that's where no-till and cover crops start to fix that. Yeah. 
I've been a little stubborn on the biology front, but I'm my I, I'm relaxing in my old age, and I am determined now that you know we've got a. I feel like we've got a systematic approach to regenerative organic farming here, and we now need a systematic biology program running parallel to this regenerative system we've got and yep we're, we're we are now doing that we we are adding these fulvic acids these humics um mm-hmm. you know just straight molasses sometimes just whatever yep but uh, we've got to feed this biology and and roots yep. is the number one way and then we've got you know I, 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 I totally agree with you. You mentioned John Kemp's name earlier. John is an absolute genius in my opinion. And I follow John and he, uh, he will talk about how detrimental it is. If you don't have enough leaf cover to maximize that photosynthesis in a day's time, it's incredible what you lose. Yes. Yes. And, and that's where having that cover uh, on. So not only that, but you cool, that the the soil down so i mean when you when you have bare soil um especially with with the sunlight that we get you know we if it gets up to 80 90 degrees the, the air temperature you can have 120 to 130 degree temperature in the soil and that just oh. makes the microbes so that's why you need that residue that residue also is kind of like a um I don't, I don't armor. Call it maybe a, an umbrella. Yeah, it's an armor, but it'll hold some of the carbon in the soil, but it also keeps it cooler and you're going to have more yeah. moisture. And yeah. that's what these microbes need. That's their habitat. So uh, when you get rid of your armor and, and you don't have live roots and, and well, live uh, canopy there covering it, it, it just causes all kinds of problems. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, uh, help me out here, Jim. I think a... Uh, the natural carbon to nitrogen ratio for biology is what somewhere around twelve to one or eleven to one. Is yeah, that, that's where it wants to live. That the average in the soil is somewhere between ten and twelve. Yeah. Uh, generally, just a rough number. It you know kind of varies, but um, maybe twenty to one. Some go as high as twenty four to one carbon to yeah. nitrogen. Uh, once you get above that number, you're going to tie up your nitrogen when you're below you know, 24 to one, maybe 20 to one, you start to release, you'll have more nitrogen available. The average though in the soil is somewhere around 10 to 12. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of a normal number, which is, which is good because nitrogen is, is probably one of those elements after carbon, you know, carbon, oxygen, and, and hydrogen. Those are the top three that, that we need to, um, but, yeah. um, you know, once you get after that, then then nitrogen is is a big one. Yeah, but all right, we've got a, we've got, you know, we've, got um, we've got some more questions here, Jim. Okay, uh, I want to get to Walter Lynn's uh, question in a mo- and hang on, Walt, I'm coming. Uh, this is Jeremy. <laughs> he was on earlier. Jeremy wants to know, uh, Jim, do you know anybody that's doing sixty inch? corn in an organic system and trying to do it with a low-lying clover I'm, I'm guessing he's he's thinking about a perennial system with a, a low-lying white clover a dutch clover or something 
and yeah. raising six, 60 inch cord. Do you know anybody doing that? I, I don't know anybody doing it, but I, I, I know some guys around Cincinnati that are doing the 60 inch row on a conventional system, not organic. I know in Minnesota, they were using uh, kudzu, um, trying and cut, not kudzu. Um, oh, it was, uh, it was a, it was a special, it wasn't kudzu, I'm sorry. It was a special type of legume. I can't remember what the name of it was. And I think they got some of their funding. The university wasn't real up on it. And they lost some of their plots, I believe. But um, I know that's been going on for probably five or 10 years. And they've yeah. been trying a perennial system. I, I think one of the benefits of, of uh, twin rows, where you have twin rows in that 60 inches, those leaves can just expand out and um, they just benefit from, you know, if carbon is limiting and uh, um, maybe they just are able to, to capture more carbon there by, with those double rows like that and uh, corn can absorb it. I've been trying to figure that one out, why they're getting such uh, as good a yields as they do off of that. Um, you know, you would think having more plants out there, having more canopy, but maybe it's just because they've got different sets of roots. Maybe the carbon is released at different times. You know, corn yeah. is probably a little bit different than than that uh, legume that they have in there. And, and the biology is a little bit different. But yeah, you put on a if you want to really increase your carbon content or, or get that carbon to recycle, that's where that sugars really come in because uh, you can get a heck of a spike uh, when you spray sugar molasses. I ideally, what you'd like to do is, is go with a three or four-way, five-way mix of sugar and add that in with your nitrogen. You can do that at about 3%. And uh, what it does, and, and this goes back to some things that John talks about, um, when we put all that nitrogen out there, it's it's um, can be toxic to the plant for a short period of time until till that plant till the soil can kind of use all that nitrogen. I mean, we're putting a slug when we side dress, we're putting a slug of nitrogen down at one yeah. time, and it, it causes yeah. the soil to go anaerobic. But you add that carbon in there, now you got the backbone to forming the proteins. And you'll increase your, your nitrogen efficiency anywhere from 10 to 30%. So you can either use 10 to 30% less nitrogen, or you can put the same amount of nitrogen on, and generally you'll increase your yield. Oh, okay. um, so I, I think having that, that um, sugar, and, and I'll tell you what, you just make the, the microbes go nuts. So part of what, what they're seeing is um, – the sugar will decrease some of the disease organisms because it won't be as anaerobic there. And so you'll have healthier plants and uh, you're, you're going to increase the amount of carbon that's going to be released out of the soil that your, your crops can, can utilize. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, what we ought to be, what we ought to be doing genetically is trying to breed for some corn that has leakier roots. Um, I don't think anybody's doing that, but that's probably what we need to be doing. Uh, at least if you want to be in the soil health area. Um, yeah, you got Walter. You got Walter. You got Walter Goldstein up in Wisconsin doing the uh, nitrogen fixing corn. He's uh, leaking back on. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
Yep. And De- Deanna came in and said, are you thinking of Kernza? Is that what you were trying to think of? Yeah, I think that was it. I, I couldn't remember the name of it. It began with a K, I think. Um, yeah, I, and it's Kernza. been a while since I looked at that research. So I, uh, I, I didn't follow it that. You know, I haven't followed that closely in the last couple of years, but Minnesota is known for, for trying to do some of that research and they were, they were having some luck with it, but I don't think the university was helping them out. I, when I talked to some of the researchers there, I visited some of their plots a couple of years ago and they were yeah. losing a lot of their plots. It, it helps, you know, I don't think the universities understand that it, it takes a while to transform this land to get it back into shape and what happened is they lost a bunch of their plots and they have to start over well that's like going back to zero again they had good soil structure now they don't have good soil structure and and it took them another four or five years to get back to where they were so yeah um, all right we've got i've got a i want to address lou mila's comment here but we're going to walt walt has been hanging on for a long time here Walt would like, uh, Jim, he'd like for you to talk about this uh, tragic disaster on on Interstate 55 and how yeah. this relates to soil health. So what do you, what do you think? Well, it's, it's terrible. The, the average soil erosion rate in the United States, I always go back to this uh, from when I was with uh, NRCS. And I, I think NRCS, I, I hate to say this, but they've just lost their focus. Um, if we would concentrate on two things, keeping the soil in place and improving aggregate stability, we could solve a lot of problems. Uh, anywhere from climate to water quality would be solved by just concentrating on keeping the soil in place. And the only way you're going to do that is those four soil health principles. We've got to have live roots and live plants. The average soil loss in the United States, and this is average, does not include gully erosion is 7.6 tons of topsoil per acre per year. And if you want to break that down, if you want to break that down, uh, take that times 2,000, that's 15,200 pounds. Compare that to a 50 bushel soybean yield, which is 3,000 pounds. We're losing, if you're getting 50 bushel soybeans, we're losing five pounds of topsoil for every one pound of, of uh, soybeans that we produce. That's, that's not that's, a sustainable system, Jim. Absolutely. It, 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 and I don't understand NRCS. They have their, you know, and I argued about this and I wasn't very popular and that's why I had to leave. I just couldn't stand it anymore. It just, um, they kind of talk out of both sides of my, and not all, I really feel for the people in NRCS. They want to do the right thing, but it's the people in Washington. I hate to say yeah. it, but you know, that's yeah. where, where most things go wrong. But um, you know, if we would get back to just trying to keep the soil, get back to the number one focus of NRCS was to keep the soil in place. And then now they're kind of really starting to promote this aggregate stability, but almost everybody has soil compaction. You know, if, if you're oh, doing yeah. tillage, you're going to have soil compaction. I, I saw an interesting statistic I'll share with you about Northwest Ohio. They, they, were, they were studying where the phosphorus is coming. So they did an isotope study. And what they found 
is that 70% of the phosphorus getting into Lake Erie is coming from fertilizer. And I associate that directly with the vertical tillage. Vertical tillage is just about 90% of the tillage in Ohio is vertical till. They've got a hard pan there, maybe two, three inches down now yeah. that's forming. And when we get the rain, it either washes off or it goes straight down to our tile. 70% of our sediment loss in Ohio on our flat ground comes from, from tile. 70% of the phosphorus and, it's, and associated with that phosphorus or with that soil is going to be the phosphorus. So oh, wow. uh, it, was it was interesting though, humans just with the sludge and the overflow, um, you know, with, you know, um, basically uh, overflow in the cities and probably septic tanks that accounted yeah. for 15% of the phosphorus loss livestock, which a lot of the folks in Northwest Ohio are saying, Hey, we got to put a stop to all this livestock. Livestock's 14%. Yeah. So as I always say, get the, get the moat out of your own eye before you try to get it. We, we all have to eat 14%. I mean, that's too high, but uh, on the other hand, it's, it's almost equal to the amount of, of uh, humans. So why, why don't, why don't we as humans try to get, fix our own problems and, and, um, you know, work on that first, because we all have to eat. <laughs> we all have yeah. to eat, I think. So. <laughs> but anyway. Well, that's great. I want to go to Lou Mila's comment here. Uh, friends in dry regions are test planting 15,000 plants per acre of Milo with 35,000 plants per acre of soybeans in alternating rows, hoping to harvest them together. What do you think about it? I'm all about it, Lou Mila. That's what we're going to do yeah. this year. We, we've been co-mingling crops now for two years. We're going to plant peas and milo together. And mm -hmm. we're going to plant soybeans and milo together. And we're going to harvest them and then separate them at the end of the day. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, a, there's some synergy there because usually your, your grasses are going to have more carbon, but they're also going to supply more phosphorus because they have finer roots to your legumes your legumes are going to be higher in nitrogen so they're going to supply nitrogen uh to that to that plant but they're not going to be very high in in carbon so it, it's a really nice synergy and you and you get a whole spectrum of beneficial uh, microbes you, you'll get you know some of them may share some of the same mycorrhizae but you'll probably get a different set of mycorrhizae from the, uh, some of the different ones from your legumes that you would from your grasses. And if you can keep them all healthy, whatever you plan after that's just gonna be uh, that much better. So yeah, um, I, I think we forget how important some of these, these microbes are in the soil. We, we can't, we don't usually see them, but, uh, and we gotta give them long enough to, to uh, survive and, and put on new spores. That, that's our biggest problem on some of our ground is um, we're really losing that diversity of the microbes in the soil. It's starting to go down. And uh, a lot of the spores are starting to, to kind of dry up. I mean, they can go for quite yeah. a while. They can last a long time, but sooner or later, they've got to have a, a host that they can, can reproduce. Right. So, Jim, what would you say is the number one detriment to biology? Um, 
not just not having a food source, uh, live roots. You just you really got to have the live roots. All these microbes. Where when you look at bare soil compared to where we've got a live root, right around that live root, you'll have anywhere from a thousand to two thousand times more microbes than you will where you have bare soil. So when you don't keep a live root out there, you, you got to have the carbon, you got to have the sugars. It, it's a you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You've got to have the live roots so you've got more microbes. The microbes then will feed that plant and the plant will feed the microbes. It's, it's you know, uh, the plant scratch the microbes back, the microbes scratch the, the, right. the plants back, and it just makes a, a really good system. That's why we have weeds, you know. Weeds, Mother Nature doesn't like um, a system. If you don't want to have weeds, weeds are the early colonizers. Um, plant something and, uh, you know, try to get your, you know, keep those nutrients so they're recycling. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's stay on the biology for just a minute here. Um, mm-hmm. it, okay, Jim, is there, is there bad biology? I mean, can we get a strain of something in that would be antagonistic to your, your inherent population and create problems? Well, that's an interesting question. And I used to think that way. Now I just realized that uh, you just got to keep it in balance. So here's something that I don't think a lot of people realize is that we always, a lot of, a lot of people think that the uh, aerobic bacteria are the most beneficial. And, and really, it, it's not a good or bad guy. It's just keeping them in balance. Uh, it's, the those that actually do us a lot of good are the anaerobic bacteria. The anaerobic bacteria are the ones that reduce the nutrients. So when you start looking at at like iron and zinc and copper and manganese, all those have to be in the reduced form. You need those anaerobic bacteria, but you don't want too many of them. Okay, you want just enough of them out there to reduce them, but uh, so you need to have a balance of the aerobic, and they'll keep the the anaerobic uh, bacteria uh, so that they're they're productive and they don't get out of balance. But too many anaerobic, and that's where most of our diseases come from. So what you want is in the soil, you want wet, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry. You want it to flip back and forth. That's why I always say the million dollar rain are those half inch, maybe one inch rains, an inch and a half. It, it wets the soil enough that all of a sudden you'll just see your crops just literally explode. It's because it's slightly anaerobic there. Yeah. And then as it dries out, those macro aggregates break open and inside those macro aggregates, you're gonna have anaerobic areas and, and oxygenated areas and they'll break open, release the nutrients right where the roots can get it and then they'll reform macro aggregates and then they'll break open and reform. And that's when we get that, that rain, those nice rains. But if, you're, if your soils are compacted, what happens is the roots can't get down to it. And most of your nutrients then leach out of your soil. If on the other hand, you're just really aer- uh, anaer- or, I'm sorry, aerobic, let's say in a, in a drought and we don't have enough water, 
now we're very aerobic. We got a lot of oxygen. Well, now we're not getting enough nutrients to the plant. So we, we want that in between. We want it to oscillate between wet, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry. And that'll give you the, your best crops. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And Deanna's got a comment there. Let the beneficials outweigh the pathogens. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's that, where we that's, we, that's where. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Jim. Well, I was just going to say one of the one of the uh, ways that you can really get the biology back into your soil. Uh, they were kind of talking about this out at uh, the Kansas snow-till on the plains. I was out there this year, and, and uh, some of the guys now are are really getting into the uh, red wigglers and the compost. And red wigglers have close to at least maybe 10, 20,000 species of very beneficial bacteria in them. And if, if you get some of the, the worm cast and put that on your soil, okay, and, and you, can, you can even put it in a spray, almost like a compost tea and put on, you know, put it in a spray, they're recommending like four pounds to the acre, which really isn't that much. Put it in a spray and spray that on your, your beans or your corn or put it on with the seed. That's what I'm planning on doing this year, yeah. um, putting it on right with the seed. You can reinvigorate a soil pretty quickly with the beneficial bacteria. Um, yeah. Now, it won't give you the, the mycorrhizal, but you can really get a lot of beneficial bacteria out there in a, in a very short period of time. You've got to have the cover crops to go with it if you want to keep them going, but, but uh, get some live roots out there, apply it to a live plant, and uh, it can really make your, your crops uh, take off. Yeah. Yeah, Bryce is back. Uh, hey, Jim, what uh, Bryce is in uh, Western Kansas. Jim, what are okay. your thoughts when you ramp up biology in a degraded poor soil structure? Out here, mm -hmm. we are seeing the biology is eating all the residue and leaving the ground bare. So basically, what he's saying, yeah. Jim, is their their system is in overdrive. How do you how do you deal yeah. with that in an arid environment? I think what you really got to do is we got to kind of go back and look at the history of that area where you're at. I don't know how much moisture they get. That would be helpful to know, but try to find cover crop species that don't take a lot of moisture, but you got to find something that you can grow in that area, whether it be five or six inches of rainfall or 15 or 20 or 25 but find cover crops that will grow and, and with, with the amount of moisture that you have. And sometimes you may have to, you know, jumpstart it a little bit. If you can irrigate it and just get it to jumpstart, that, that can make a big difference. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. Somehow you got to break that cycle and get more carbon back into the soil and keep that soil covered. And, and you got to find species I, I can't tell you exactly what you might want to use in your area it would be helpful if I knew how much moisture, but even then I'm not, I'm better on high moisture areas than I am low moisture areas. That's my expertise, 18, but 18 to 22. 18. Inches, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but 18 to 22, but how much of that came, comes down uh, as five inch rains and, and what's the distribution uh, through the summer, through the fall, yeah. the winter, 
the spring, you know, that that's our problem. I, I really, what we ought to be talking is effective rainfall. I, a five inch rain is almost useless if it all comes down yeah. at once and 90% of it runs off the land. That that's exactly. now you're back down. If, if you're at 18 and you, you, you take out and, and let's say you take off four inches of it. Now you're down to, to, to four, 14 inches. And if you have several rains like that, so yeah, I, that's our problem. We, we messed up our climate a little bit and, and, uh, you know, how do we get back again? And <laughs> I, I, I yeah. hope we're not at a breaking point. You know, I, at some yeah. point it, it, we may have areas that becoming almost, you know, desert again. Uh, and, and you got to get the biology in there. You got to hope we get, you got to take advantage of it. When, when, if you see a big rain coming or a good size rain coming, we got to find a way to get something living out there, get the seed out there before, <clears throat> before the rain comes and, try to get it something right. up and growing right you know? because yeah, you can store <clears throat> you can store a lot of water in those soils once you get your organic matter levels up sure yeah i you know i've often said we don't have a a flood problem we got a water infiltration and a water holding capacity problem yes yeah it, it's That's... not runoff we don't have a runoff problem we have a water infiltration problem and that comes right back to that aggregate stability yeah. um Aggregate yeah. stability really is about carbon content and live roots and using the sugars and then live roots to form from microaggregates. Microaggregates are like a brick wall or a sidewalk, to, uh, a road. The water's going to run off. When you get the macroaggregates, it's, it's like sponges uh, that are just going to soak up the water and allow that water to infiltrate into the soil so that we don't lose it all. So again, yeah. we're going to increase our effective rainfall. That's what we do. And and water yep. storage. It's effective rainfall, water storage, kind of similar terms, really. Yeah. And, you know, a little bit, Deanna's got a comment here. Um, uh, let me go back to, oh, yeah. Um, Bio-prime to seed with indigenous mi uh, microorganisms. Um, she's got yep. the, the product. Um, but, yeah, and that's what we're doing this year, Jim. Um we are, yep. are we're seed coating biology, we're in furrow biology, yep. and we're foliar feeding biology. And of course, yes. you know, you've yes. you got to treat this like a test. So you got test strips and you yes. got to keep the data and all this. Um, yep. But yeah, I mean, there's so many things we can be doing. And um, it's just, it's just, it's great that we've got so many people willing to take take these chances and try some of this stuff. Right. I, I'm really ramping up my system. I'm going to be having, um, um, I, I think I, I talked to you a little bit. You heard me one time. I, I think I texted to you. Maybe I forgot to, but on my soybeans, um, I'm putting on some uh, cobalt, putting about an yeah. ounce per acre. And I'm going to inoculate my soybeans um, and then put that cobalt on there. I'm also going to be putting on the um, um, the, um, the the vermicast, probably about uh, uh, soaking them a little bit in that, and then yep. uh, I've also got some um, uh, some some of John Kemp's, uh, I believe it's Bio Gold, uh, the oh, cool. uh, some of the mycorrhizae, yeah. 
and so I'm, I'm, uh, I've got one of his mycorrhizal uh, products. So I'll, I'll be putting that kind of all on that with that seed coating just to try to supercharge it and uh, see what we can do with that. Yep. And, uh, and then, and then I think add in some sugar, you know, get some sugar as you go. I, uh, I'm really starting to get into um, um, putting in a little bit of uh, sugar throughout the growing season with micronutrients. One of the one of the nutrients nobody hardly ever talks about uh, when when we have cold wet springs, iron is is uh, usually one of the elements that that's not very well cycled in the soil. It's not not readily available. So a lot of times when we see corn and beans that look a little yellow, we think it's nitrogen deficiency. It, it's probably it could very easily be related to iron. Iron is needed. You got to have adequate iron in order to have. Um, they they form an enzyme that makes chlorophyll. So if you don't have adequate iron out there, I've been doing this on my tomato plants. I'll take uh, some fulvic acid and uh, put on some iron oxide and uh, mix those together, and I can turn my tomato plants the darkest green. Within mm. within hours, they will turn dark, wow. dark green, and and we spe we especially see this on sandy soils because iron, iron and um, um, a lot of times um, manganese are limited. Or ma I'm sorry, magnesium. I always get those confused. Yeah. Magnesium, magnesium is the central element for chlorophyll. So on sandy soils, magnesium is one year. You really gotta gotta watch to make sure you got enough of that. Most of the time on our heavy clay soils, we, we've got way too much, but uh, magnesium is probably the most poorly understood element. We really don't know how, how it recycles, but you got to have adequate magnesium in order to have good chlorophyll. So both iron and magnesium are something that we really need to look at. Um, the, the other element that I see lacking when I'm looking at soil tests um, is boron. Um, we're, we're just with all, with all the loss in, um, um, our organic matter. If you don't have adequate boron, you can't get calcium into the plant. Um, and, and I see almost university boron and sulfur and zinc are probably the three that I see almost always are limiting. Um, Zinc can be 10 to 30% of your yield, uh, yield loss, un unseen yield loss most of the time, but anywhere from 10 to 30% of your yield loss. It, zinc is needed for 300 enzymes. Now, uh, that sounds like a lot. A lot of those enzymes are somewhat redundant, but uh, calcium uh, has 146 enzymes that it uh, it. Uh, causes, you know, you got to have the calcium in order to activate those enzymes, but those are all key. Every one of those calcium enzymes are key, key enzymes for, for good plants. So, yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, Claudia, how you doing tonight? Uh, in California, we had so much rain, but because of tilling, most farms flooded because the rain did not go into the soil. Yeah, that's exactly what you're talking about. You get yeah. a three inch, uh, you get a three inch rain and, and maybe a half inch of it goes into this profile. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your effectiveness is what, maybe 15% in that 15, 16, 
uh, yeah. versus if you have a good, well-aggregated soil, you get it all to go in uh, and it doesn't run off. But when it, when it runs off, a lot of our nutrients are right there on the surface. And so it's going to run right over to the creek and that will turn your creek brown. Um, but it, it's interesting when you see the creek turning brown, what, what is that? Most of us think it's soil, but a lot of that is carbon. That's uh, humic acid is a dark brown, and that's kind of the storehouse for a lot of nutrients. Fulvic acids, uh, and there's a whole slew of fulvic acids, they're kind of a yellow brown. So when you start looking at these ditches, we're not only losing you know, the N and the nitrogen and the phosphorus, we're losing with it the the micronutrients and we're also losing soluble carbon okay and these soluble carbons like like the fulvic acid the the benefit of the fulvic acid is in the soil it can take a micronutrient tie it up chelate it lightly and it can be absorbed by the root and it will take in that carbon compound and move it through the roots, the stems, and the leaves, and then deposit that micronutrients. Well, now we've learned that you can take fulvic acid, these, these small carbon, organic carbon molecules, we can use it and we can put it on the stem and on the leaves, and the leaves will absorb uh, much better with that fulvic acid. If you just do it with a, a spray without fulvic acid in it, Fulvic acid small enough that it can be absorbed by the, the plant tissues, the roots, the stems, and the leaves. So you, you always want to put a little bit of fulvic in there. It's, it's good to have uh, in, in a higher quality quantity, you're going to use the humic. The humic uh, is, is more of the storehouse for a lot of these, a lot of these micronutrients. So we're just starting to learn about that. I mean, that this information's been around for quite a while, but Right now, there's there's a lot of lot of interest in micronutrients and uh, using fulvic and humic acids and things like that to, to get them into the plant. So right, um, we got a okay. Deanna's got a comment here. Industrial ag is getting the blame for the tragedy in Illinois, but broad scale organic, not you, of course is mostly heavy till. It's not just industrial ag using heavy tillage. How come organic isn't under fire for the tragedy? Maybe no organic farms in the area. Yeah, I don't know the, the particulars yeah. there, Deanna, but yes, the uh, a lot of organic uh, operations are are probably more tillage than the your conventional neighbors have. So yeah, there's um, yeah. there's a lot of room for improvement there. So, but I, I again, I don't know the details on what the farmer was doing and and what happened. I just know what did happen. And but yes, you make a very good point. I, that's where I think Rick, uh, your system of going uh, organic with uh, no-till and cover crops. That's you know that's kind of. I, I see us now going down, it used to be we were kind of going down maybe parallel paths, but I think now these paths are intersecting. Used to be yeah. no-till and cover crops, you, you wouldn't talk about organics, but now they're, we're kind of bringing in the organic along with the no-till and the cover crops. And I think that's, that's, that, that's a good way to go. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I, you know, is this thing perfected? Not even close. 
but we're right. going to keep working on it every year and we're going to try to get it. We're going to try to make it better every time we, we yep. do it. So, um, yep. yeah. And now, uh, Jim, I want to ask you something else here. Um, let's see. Deanna's got Rick is the only one, uh, ballsy enough to do broad scale, no till organic. Yeah. Well, or the dumbest one. I don't know which, which it is, Deanna, but anyway, thank you for that. Now, Jim, let me ask you another question here. What do you think about adding these, and probably it's going to be more about humic than fulvic, to a chemistry program? Um, oh, oh, yeah. Um, so let's say, let's say you wanted to think about reducing some inputs, and the way you want to reduce those inputs is maybe by reducing the amount of glyphosate you use. Could we add oh, a, absolutely. a humic acid to that? Yeah. Okay. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, the 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 Roundup is a chelator, but it's a strong, strong chelator, and it doesn't let go. Okay. Yeah. What you want are these these fulvic acids are also chelators, but you know um, when you're looking at Roundup, I mean, the list is just, it's, it's amazing. I, I think what Roundup's doing for us and, and what, remember when Roundup came out, Rick, you probably remember that. I, I don't know. Yeah. That was like the late, uh, it was in the eighties, but then all of a sudden we, you know, we went into the nineties, we started getting into the GMO corn, but remember when we had GM, it started off with GMO, um, uh, Roundup ready corn, and uh, and soybean, I'm sorry, soybeans first. Soybean, and remember yeah. when they, yeah, and when they did that, remember there was a yield loss because the first couple of years they did that, and then they stopped doing it because they didn't want to show the yield loss. Well, I think we're putting with Roundup, we're putting a lid on our top yields uh, be, because what it does is it it ties up really really tight iron, manganese. Copper, zinc, calcium, magnesium, just about anything with a, a positive charge, it, it just ties up. And right. um, the only one I, I don't think it does too much on is potassium. That's the only one that I haven't seen. But other than that, it ties up all these micronutrients. So you might have enough micronutrients out there to get maybe 50 bushels, 60 bushel soybeans, maybe 70, but, but maybe... If you didn't have the Roundup out there and you had really good soil biology and good aggregate stability, now you might be able to get 80, 90, 100, 120 yeah. bushel soybeans. Yeah. And, and I, that's what I see kind of Roundup. I'm trying to get all my guys to get away from it. I, I, I'm really looking forward to when Harpy uh, comes out this next year. Are, are you familiar with that one? I'm sure yeah. you are. Yeah. Uh, that that's that organic herbicide it has three plant extracts in it and i think yep. when that comes out that could be a game changer for us and uh, yep. I, I think that will allow us to not have all this uh excess chelation in the soil and right. uh, uh, and, and i mean we don't even we won't even go into some of the health problems that are indirectly associated with roundup i mean there's, oh, yeah. there's all kinds of things you know, I, I can remember as an extension educator, I would say Roundup's one of the safest, you know, herbicides at that time. That's what we were told. You know, you can drink yeah. it. It won't kill you. Okay. But what we didn't realize 
is that it might not kill you right away, but what happens is it does have a direct effect on the bacteria in your guts. And if you don't have good bacteria in your gut or in the soil, what will happen is you're, you're going to start getting diseases and, and your, your health's going to go downhill. And yeah. uh, that's, that's, I think, where we kind of failed to recognize some of the long-term effects of that. There's, uh, I think the, the number I saw, 285 million pounds of Roundup are applied in the United States every year. That's enough for about eight-tenths eight of a pound of Roundup for every human in the United States. Wow. Tenths of a pound for every human. And Roundup is everywhere. Even on your organic fields, you've got some Roundup blowing in. Oh, yeah. Okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, uh, uh, it's everywhere. And I really think, you know, people that, uh, uh, that have this gluten problem, uh, there's no reason that you should be have gluten problems, but they're kind of associating that with Roundup because it, it's uh, taking out the, the uh, beneficial bacteria in your guts, Alzheimer's, um, yeah. uh, the uh, uh, diabetic, it makes diabetic systems worse, um, um, all the Crohn's diseases, all the immune things, all those things can kind of be associated to secondary it's not a, a primary but it can make all these things a little worse and yeah you know, we have a lot of there's a lot of disease in in the united states a lot of things have really gone up you start tracking it back uh, a lot of that came probably started really getting a lot worse about the same time that roundup really started to, to ramp up so i am not yeah. a fan of i'm trying to get roundup out of my system as much as possible but it's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's cheap and it's easy to use. Well, yeah, and it's just made it's just made the farmers a little complacent. I mean, it's the easy button. Yes. 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 Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking forward to it. Usually a herbicide has a 30-year lifespan. It's hit that 30-year mark, and it is on kind of on the downhill slide, I think, a lot of lawsuits and, and whatnot. I think with some of these newer herbicides that are coming out, uh, I don't know. Have you ever heard of Avenger? That's another organic herbicide. Um, no, I don't think I don't think many people use it because it's probably two and a half times, two to two and a half times more expensive than than Roundup. But uh, uh, it, it's another burn down. Raviton, you know, is another way of another burn down that you can get a, get away from the Roundup. It might be a little weak on lamb's quarter, but <clears throat> trying to get away from Roundup. I'm, as far as I know, I don't know all the details on it, but I don't think it's a, as much of a chelator uh, as, as what the Roundup is. Roundup is just really uh, such a strong, strong chelator that uh, ties up too many, too many microbes. Yeah. Well, let's see. We got some comments here, Jim. Uh, Deanna talks about Jill, Jill Clapperton talks about biology metabolizing the Roundup so it doesn't tie mm -hmm. up the nutrients. So very, very mm -hmm. important there. Yes, that's true. Um, let's see what else we have here. Oh, yeah. Uh, you need to read uh, the book, What Your Food Ate. Um, mm -hmm. 
the the last uh, uh, book in the uh, Montgomery series there, and then okay. uh, Claudia, yep. Claudia is telling us that her aunt and cousin used Roundup on their orchard all the time, and they both died from leukemia six months from each other in two thousand and nine. It's just it's yeah. just horrible. It's just horrible. Yep. There, there is a product out. Um, one of the companies has it. I think it's called Simbex, and it's supposed to counteract the Roundup. I don't know if it just breaks it down, but um, Simbex is something that I'm kind of starting to look into a little bit. Uh, mm. It's supposed to be a good product that you can buy that can. Um, um, I mean, like de detox or something. You mean? It, 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 it can detoxify your soil uh, from okay. the Roundup. So the problem with okay. Roundup is it's the metabolites that stick around for a long period of time. They can, you know, it can be years to get rid of the Roundup. Even if you stop using Roundup today, you might have some of the metabolites around there for, for quite a yeah. few years until yeah. it breaks down. And this Simbex is, is supposed to be... Uh, pretty good at breaking it down and uh, getting it broke down into its elements so that it, yeah. it can't harm, uh, can't, uh, can't hurt your, uh, uh, it, it won't do the, the chelation that stops the, the excess chelation that goes on. Right? right. Well, my guys, Jim, we've been going for over an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Wow, there's so many more things I'd like to get into, Jim, but I'm going to respect your time and everyone else's time. Um, wow, thank you so much, Jim. And please tell everyone again uh, the name of your company and how can they, how can they find you? I'm uh, Horman Soilhouse Services. Uh, you can just look me up on the web if you type in Horman Soil and then Health and then it's Services with an S on the end. And I have a website, um, services.com uh, You can you can go to that. Um, got a lot of fact sheets on there. A lot of resources. Um, you know, I I'm I do sell some of the crimpers. That's that's been a big part of my. I I I really become one of their top salesmen for I and J here uh, this this uh, last year. That's, so that's great. Had a really good year. Yeah, and I know you use the INJ, I believe, don't you? Rick? Yep, yeah, we've got a 60-footer. Yes, yep, yep. I've yeah. sold uh, so far this year two 30s and a 20 and a 15. So got two oh. 30s in my barn. So they're they're Wait. available. A lot of people don't have them, but I, I bought a few of them ahead because I know about uh, this time of year guys want them and, and they can't get them. So yeah. if you know anybody needs one, I've got two, so. Well, that's awesome. Well, folks, I, I can't tell you enough how how impressive Jim Horman is. I, I've, I've known him for several years, and we got a, a small, small taste of his knowledge tonight. But I'm telling you, if you want to really move forward in this space and you need, you need a con consultant to help you, Jim would be an excellent choice. So please keep him in mind. And and guys, thanks for all the kind comments. I, I'm glad to be back too. I, uh, I apologize. We got up to a slow start in 23, but my gosh, I've been so busy. I haven't had any time. Uh, 
but I know I love doing this stuff and I know you guys like the guests we had. So uh, it's been a great time, Jim. Thank you so much. And yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks have, have, a, have a great spring. Yep. Yeah, you too. All right. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye.